Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you so much for joining us for another exciting episode. Um, We are rounding out our second season. I keep saying to everybody, I am, when I say that, it shocks me to a certain extent because I thought that this was going to be just a passing fad for me that I would kind of do six or seven months and get tired of it and move on to something else and not doing it. And now here I am two years into it and I'm still moving and people are still calling and just what I did not think was going to happen, which this thing was going to start resonating with people and people were going to start calling and wanting to be in is actually happening. So now I got a whole nother thing which is being a podcaster. And so, but it's been great because I get a chance to do what I'm doing today, which is to talk to a good friend. And so, and a colleague, someone who I've watched start um, her own calling, who I've seen, you know, mature and grow and expand and impact and see her passion and all those kinds of things, which has really been cool. I haven't been able to see it up front and close since I've moved to Atlanta, but she don't know I'm a low level stalker of people who I love to watch. And so even though I don't say anything on social media, I am watching progress. I'm watching what people are doing. I'm watching the impact. And so the person I'm introducing you to today is my good friend, Lisa Good. She is a transformative figure um, in addressing trauma, grief, loss, all resulting from violent exposure. Um, Lisa's academic journey began with a bachelor's of science degree at Skidmore College and continued as she earned her master of social work degree from the State University of New York at Albany. Currently she's expanding. You might already have this, your resume not be up to, but I'm sure I would know if you were Dr. Lisa Good now. We're gonna call you Dr. Lisa anyway, just to be prophetic in that way. And so if you have kind of slacked off, this should encourage you to pick it back up. But with over two decades of experience in addiction services, former director roles at Snug and the Homer Perkins Center, Lisa's professional life is a testament to her dedication to societal betterment. Her volunteer roles as a HIV educator, crime victim, sexual assault, crisis counselor, and community activist further reflect her unwavering commitment to activism and support. How are you doing, my friend? I am well today. Let's be well every day, right? Yes. <laughs> Let's be That's well. the goal. That's the goal. But <laughs> it's the dual nature of the work that sometimes it, it can kind of chip away at your wellness. Absolutely. You know, self-care, which is probably something I have to bring you back on. Several people I probably will have to do kind of a group um, interview just talking to several people who I know and follow each and every day. Some of them I'm in contact more often than others, but we often are always talking about like, where do we fall in the space of us helping everybody else? Like, when do we take time to help ourselves? Because for us, life still happens. 
right? We still wake up every morning with this, this, this God-given calling to like save whatever corner of the earth that God has given us to save and um, trying to figure out what about this corner over here because that's a significant corner. My husband, my wife, my children, my family, my neighbors, you know, those kinds of things. But I'm so glad to talk to you today because you often come to mind as I'm doing my work and I'm dealing with fathers and I'm dealing with families and, you know, I'm in a city where, you know, violence and crime is, you know, at an all time high, like most urban centers around the country and even in smaller cities like um, Albany and Schenectady and Troy still dealing with, you know, this element of, um, you want to call it crime. It's just, I don't even want to call it dysfunction, but this element of um, something that we have to fix and we have to do something about. And in your special area, I was reminded this morning, Lisa, as I was going back through my uh, records, um, I pulled up the flyer of the event that we did in Albany where we were talking about um, grief and violence and kind of really putting some light for me on how this relates to fathers. And so talk to me a little bit, but before I do that with all of my guests, because we are fatherhood podcast, I have my guests start off with telling me their fatherhood story or their daddy story. So what's your daddy story? Um, so my daddy story is, first of all, thank God my dad is still alive. Mm. And so for me, um, growing up, I was blessed to have an amazing stepdad. Um, my parents divorced when I was very, very young. And um, my stepdad came into my life probably when I was about six or seven. And what I was privileged to witness is that um, he and my dad developed their own relationship. Mm -hmm. And so I had a relationship with both my dad um, and my stepdad and and neither one were threatened by the other, right? Mm -hmm. And I had that 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 whole experience of having um, two men who cared for me and loved me in very different ways, but were were present um, in my life. And so, you know, when my stepdad died in 1989, suddenly, um, you know, in that context, I realized that one, even though I had my, still had my dad, that my stepdad, it was just such a devastating loss, right? And it, it just, it overshadowed, it was just a crushing loss. I don't know how to describe it. Um, although I was an adult, a young adult, I, I had my own family, you know, he and my mom had young kids. So I had siblings that were kids, that were children. Mm -hmm. um, I have a sibling that's the same age as my oldest son, right? My baby sister, right? So, you know, now my mom is thrust into this role of being a single parent. And um, and so my husband stepped in, you know, to, you know, just be, you know, be all of the things as much as possible. But his absence left a huge gap but the gift in that is because my siblings saw my dad be a part and be in relationship with him, that 
by extension, he has relationship with them. And so they call him Papa, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and so there is love and, you know, and connection there. And um, there is respect there um, between my, you know, my parents. And I can call my dad and say, dad, can you come over and do this for mom? Or, you know, mom, you know, dad is sick. I need, you know, can you call a doctor? He doesn't have a doctor. Can you help me out with this or whatever? And um, so I've been very blessed um, in that way. And of course, when you're, there's separation, um, especially when I was an adolescent, because my dad was remarried, he had his own family or whatever. And of course, as once I'm a teenager, I have like these different expectations and demands. And so there were lots of, you know, hard, hard, you know, conversations about what I wanted for him mm-hmm. and what I wanted, um, you know, from him and what I ultimately, where I ultimately landed at was in a place of honor that no matter what I would choose honor and that no matter what I would choose to be someone who added to my dad's life and not someone who took and and also being willing to receive. And so, for instance, my dad is an amazing cook, an amazing, you know, carpenter, handyman. So anything around my house that I'd be like, you know, September would be our time together. That's daddy do list. Yeah, dad, I, the windows covered, I need, you know, whatever. Whatever thing I'm imagining, he's going to come over and like, okay, dad, we got to do this. We got to do that. We got to do this. You got to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always paid him. Like, we always paid him. Like, I don't want anything. I'm like, no, you came. You fixed the plumbing. No, you came. You know, give me, you know, give me the estimate for this, you know. And it was because I always wanted to, you know, not be someone who took advantage of his heart and his talent and his craft. And now he's in a season of his life where he really can't move like he was moving and so I see some of the frailties creeping in but he's he's sharp he's healthy um for a man his age and um I get to hold him in a different sort of way Mm -hmm. um and so it's different to see how our relationship is changing in light of his aging process and the different things that he needs and how he just kind of lets me be the boss. And, (laughs) um, and, you know, it's just more, um, it's more of a peaceful sort of cherishing. Nice. Yeah. We, um, you know, we were, was talking to someone and they were talking about adoption. So this person was an adopted child. And he said that he didn't even know that he was, he didn't understand the whole notion of adoption until he was like 35 years old. And it wasn't because he didn't know about adoption. It is because his family never framed his presence in their lives as an adopted child. And I said, you know, I said, if you look at African-American culture or even more African culture, 
that there are certain cultures, you know, around the world to which particularly English will have a definition for a word and you would ask someone, how do you say adoption, you know, in your language? And their response is, we don't have a word for that, right? And then you have to ask the question, why don't you have a word for that? Because there's no concept of that in the same way that you see it. Like the village is the village. Like there's no term to define how we bring people into our lives. They just are who they are in the village. And we honor them for being who they are in the village without these labels that we put on them. Because the minute we put a label on someone, we have an expectation for them to meet that prescribed label that we put on. So as you talk about both your stepdad and your dad, it reminds me of when we're talking to these dads where we say, listen, like ultimately we know what you want. You want to be useful, right? You want to be in your child's life and you want to be useful. And so that's why he will say, I don't want to get paid because you're fulfilling, you're paying me, but you don't know you're paying me because all I need to know is that I'm useful, right? And I may not know how to play this role that society wants me to play, but as long as I'm useful, I'm at least doing what I'm being asked to do. And I think that's where um, we struggle. And so, you know, purpose and calling has a lot to do with that, which is why I'm so interested in hearing like why and what was the inspiration for creating um, Urban Grief. Um, so Urban Grief literally is a, was is a call from God. Like literally, I was <laughs> I was minding my business, <laughs> delivering newspapers, trying to earn extra money to pay that LaSalle Institute tuition for my son. <laughs> and um, what was what was going through my my heart was that you know. At that time, recently, there had been three homicides of young people back to back in 2001 in Albany. And so, of course, people were in an uproar. And and I remember attending those funerals. I attended two out of the three services. And I what struck me was that you know, you had all of these young people, especially for one of the funerals, it was a young girl, young woman, and she was like 18 or 19. Um, she was also pregnant. And I just remember, you know, sitting in the church, you know, and surrounded by all these young people. And I'm trying to comfort this one, trying to comfort that one. And then I remember them so vividly rolling the casket out of the church and the kid just laying on it. And they get outside and all of the people disperse. And you have all of these young people, you have all these, these people that are just there while community um, adults, leaders left. Mm. And I thought, something is wrong here, right? But I'm, at this moment, I'm trying to just touch as many you know, as I can. And then I went to the next funeral um, and it wasn't, the pain was there, but the outward expression wasn't in that same way mm -hmm. um, because there were young men 
and young boys, and they weren't as expressive. They were stunned. Mm. So they were still in a way. And I came out of the church and everyone left and I saw them just stand around um, and, they, and uncertain about where they would go or, or what they would do next. And so, you know, you know, when I, when I saw that, when I witnessed that, I mean, first of all, working in addictions, addiction is all about loss. That's number one. And when I came into the field of addiction, HIV and AIDS was the thing that was really at the top of the list that was taking out a lot of people. Um, and so I came into that work um, having to quickly grasp a deep understanding of all of the layers around loss, specifically losses that were stigmatized, right? And then combining that with addiction and looking at losses that are ambiguous in nature, mm -hmm. right? Um, or self-inflicted losses, which then... Um, you know, causes people to question their right to grieve. Um, and so when I combine, you know, when, when I, after that experience with the funerals, and like I said, I was minding my business and I heard God say, do something. And I said, what? Um, and that's, and that's where it started from. And I said, well, you know, I don't have the expertise kind of like, you know, Moses, I'm like, I don't have the expertise. <laughs> start stuttering. Start I don't stuttering. have three degrees. I don't have these things. And, and at that time, Maria College had just started a bereavement certificate program. I was inter not interested in paying anyone's more tuition or whatever, but, you know, I said, Hey, you know, do you all have any scholarships or whatever? And the director of that program at that time did, they did, they did something that they never do, which is they found money for me to take some of those initial classes for free. And so and then from there, I moved into Skidmore and my I made the focus of my Skidmore um, capstone um, the justify the, the, the theoretical um, groundwork and the needs assessment has a justification for the implementation of a community model um, called urban grief. And that's kind of how I, I got started and started training people, realized it wasn't sustainable with volunteers. But by that time, I had already built this expertise. And so I continued the work no matter what, serving grieving people no matter what, um, you know, whether it was by myself or with volunteers helping me with things. But the homicide and the violence part of it became the place where I landed. But realistically, I was serving um, a lot of our people who had experienced losses due to heart attacks, you know, sudden illnesses, um, overdoses, suicides, very personal, private kinds of things that people said, oh, you can call her she's safe. Oh, you can call her. She's trustworthy. Oh, you can call her. She'll pray. She'll show up. And, um, here we are. <laughs>
20 grief grief is an interesting thing particularly when it comes to you know our community and talking about grief because we try to make it one thing right we try to make it about death and we try to make it about the funeral and we try to make it about you know the flowers that we give people at the funeral not understanding the different ways that um death comes into our lives right and so sometimes it's by violent acts sometimes it's by the cycle of life sometimes it is um unexpected sometimes it is expected like grief is grief is grief right and so talk a little bit about grief in and of itself and what is it for people who really don't understand so when people say um let them grieve they don't even really know what that means because they don't really know what grief is talk about grief for a second so here here's where um you know, um, here's where I can get a little techie, right? So, <laughs> in terms of my language, so you know, when we use the term "let people grieve," what we're really, if we were to look at the the actual terms, what we're really saying is let them mourn, because mourn mourning is the outward expression of grief. Grief is the emotional, is the normal, is the normal emotional response to any significant change or loss. And when you include change, it opens up the the idea that anytime there is something, a big change occurs in your life, that there's going to be um, feelings of grief and um, a need to acknowledge that and give expression um, to that. So at the most basic level, grief is the emotional, the normal emotional response in the face of a loss or a change. Mm-hmm. And I think when you boil it down and make it simple in that way, then it starts to open up our eyes to um, all of the things that we probably should acknowledge as loss and actually give ourselves permission to experience the emotions of grief and grieving. Where is the difference in the terminology of grief and trauma? Because they sound the same, but there is a difference between the two of them. So, you know, when, when, here's the thing, trauma produces grief, Mm. right? Because trauma you rarely experience traumatic events or situations where you don't also experience a, co- a company sense of loss. Um, and so like you raised the question in terms of like medical, right? If people experience, you know, something, you know, medical, a medical diagnosis, right? You know, when you get that, the big C diagnosis, that is traumatic. Right. That is traumatic. And in that moment, you know, as you go through the process of working with doctors and treatment planning and all those things, you experience a lot of losses along the way. Um, And in that moment, 
people are thinking about, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But what they're not necessarily in tune to is the actual losses that people are experiencing along the way. So trauma is is different in in that sometimes it's centered around event mm-hmm. or situations. It can be acute, like a one-time event, or it can be something that is chronic and continuous and ongoing. And for most of our folks, what we are exposed to are continuous and uh, chronic, ongoing types of stressful, extremely stressful and traumatic events that overwhelm our normal sense of coping. And we all have a baseline in our bodies, in our minds, in our spirits um, for how we cope. We all have our go-to coping. But what makes trauma or traumatic situations and events a little bit different is that it overwhelms our our normal uh, way of coping. And once you hit that spot, you know, that's where people start to try to, you know, uh, are dealing with a lot of stress-related symptoms. Um, that's when people are dealing with um, a lot of maybe, you know, emotional and maybe cognitive and mental kinds of things. And so grief is very similar, is that when you line them up at the acute phase they look diff- they look similar in terms of how they affect the stress response in the body but the difference is is that if it's an acute event you can regain your stability and build your coping skills mm-hmm. right you can build out through your support right you can regain some stability and and that kind of thing to mitigate and offset um you know, the impact of the trauma that you've experienced. With grief, it, it's a little bit different because the experience of the loss, when, especially when it's death, the experience of the loss, it evolves with you as you evolve. And so the chronic aspect of grieving can take a toll on you in a different kind of way. And when you add in traumatic elements, it exasperates grief. So grief can exasperate the traumatic elements of a situation and trauma can exasperate the grief experienced in a situation. And for most of our people, particularly um, um, if if we focused in on men, um, they're both at the intersections of both all the time, especially as black people. We're always at the intersection. And so you have this unrelenting experience of toggling between living with trauma and grief because trauma produces grief. And oftentimes the things that you are grieving are connected to things that have been traumatic. So there's a lot, a lot of intertwining. Yeah. You know, um, thanks for being techie because that is kind of where I want to go because I think 
we have to slow down sometimes so that people can really kind of understand at the core what's impacting them because we kind of do use these broad terms and people don't really know what they mean and they use them to describe emotions and feelings and situations, not really clearly understanding what you're saying and therefore you don't really understand what's happening to you. I like to use this whole notion that there is for our communities, there is both um, micro, <clears throat> micro grief and macro grief, right? And so they're the things that we grieve for that are very intimate and personal, like our family members, our close friends, our fellow gang members, you know, our, our sec, our crew, our boys, our girls, whatever those things are. And then there is the, um, there is the macro grief, which is police violence, um, you know, racism, um, and those, um, um, traumatic slavery syndrome, all of those kind of things that are these kind of broader things but they impact us on a micro level. Like they're almost like, um, oh my goodness, what is that term that you use for things that trigger you? Um, it's a medical term, it triggers, it's, I can't, it'll come to me. But anyway, when something happens or you're watching something on, which is why I don't watch the news, because the news triggers me, right? And the news triggers me in, in, in ways that I see something occur. And then it attaches to me, particularly as someone who's in this work and trying to figure out how does my work help remedy what I'm seeing on TV so that that does not occur as much as it should. So when we are looking at, you know, the things that are somewhat um, macro, um, the things that are happening in our communities watching, uh, one of the things I remember, Lisa, I don't know if you remember this. I watch things this way and I look for these kind of things. When Mike Brown was murdered in, um, I believe it was St. Louis. Hopefully I, I have the right one because there's so many of them. But I believe it was Mike in Ferguson. Ferguson. Um, that was Mike Brown. And so on the night of his, I don't think it was the night of his his death. I think it was um, when the rioting began. And so there were two scenes that they showed, and this is kind of where I'm going now with respect to what does this look like specifically for, for men and men who are dads, right? And so the one scene, they were focused on Mike's biological mom, and they were at the podium, and they were doing a press conference. And his mother was speaking about what was happening. But his biological father was in the background. He was in the back row. He was like, he was, he was behind them. And his face was stoic. Like he, like he, to your point, he's there, he's feeling something. He doesn't know how to express it. They're not giving him a space to express, not even recognizing that here is a parent who is as equal parent in the back, grieving in a way now that no one is recognizing and he has to go off and figure out what to do with this. At the same time, they flip from that scene and they go to the scene downtown. I don't know if you remember, they flip to the scene where they have the cameras now on the wife's husband, who is the stepfather. 
and he is on a car with a bullhorn and his outward expression or mourning is, let's burn this down. And so you have this contrast with two parents grieving over the same son, one being ignored and not really having a way to express that. And the other one who was, I'm going to find a way to express my grief and people are going to hear it through my bullhorn. I'm going to amplify my voice. When you see or if you were to see those two things and the uh, gulf between the two of them, when you're looking at men, can you really explain why one man would choose one way of grieving than the other? Wow, that's a that's a tough question. One the thing one of the things that I see happening happens often is that there is this internal dialogue that I believe takes place around who has the right to grieve. Mm. And so oftentimes biological fathers are sometimes in the background um, and they're in the background um, because of relationship dynamics between them and the mother and the stepfather or the other man. Um, They may be in the background because they weren't present. And so they're questioning their right to move to the forefront and say, I'm here too. I'm hurting too. And I think that what I see when people are grieving is that there always are going to be some people who are more vocal and there are going to be other people who are internalizing that expression of grief as, well, they should have the bullhorn or they should be the one to speak or they should be the one to be seen and they should be the one to be heard because after all, I wasn't. Mm. Because after a loss, we all take inventory of who or what we were not in that relationship. Every relationship. Like it, it, we're all, there's always this internal inventory taking of who was I in this relationship? Was I enough? Um, you know, did I show up in a way that was meaningful? And we all do it. Um, but I think, um, and with that, okay. And with that, whatever your conclusion is, that influences how you show up because even when while you're taking that inventory, people around you are also taking that same inventory and they're coming up with their own judgments and their own conclusions. And so oftentimes there's not really an effort or an intention to think about how do we create and bridge in these moments so that all of the people who are experiencing the loss in their in, in their different respective roles can receive uh, a recognition, acknowledgement of their pain, their loss, and also an opportunity to have space 
to acknowledge what that loss was. And the silence comes because of shame. Mm. The silence comes because of judgment. Mm. The silence comes because of, um, you know, guilt. The silence comes because of fear. Because if I speak out and say, this is my child, and I feel some kind of way that they are gone, they'll know who's going to slam them. Right. Right. And you don't know what other relationship things might be exposed. Now, versus the person who is very vocal and expressive, you know, one of the things that I see happen happens often for black men is that their expression of grief gets criminalized Mm. um, and it gets judged in a different way. And, and so one, we don't know what led up, what, what, what were the lead ups in that moment um, that we don't know we don't know who who has the voice in the ear of those individuals. Um, and we don't know what they what information they're being given, right? And all of those things play a part in how people outwardly express and what they choose to say in that moment. But here it is. If we are focused on grief and if we are focused on healing then we have to be just as attuned to that expression without judgment as we need to be to this expression Mm -hmm. without judgment because they're both expressions. And I don't think that, I don't think that we do that um, because people are caught up, you know, in the moment now here in terms of media sound bites, when you see, things on the national landscape and who gets spotlighted, oftentimes the media does not do their due diligence in the rush to, you know, put somebody front and center. They don't always do their due diligence. And so many times, you know, because of how our relationships form in our community, kinship relationships, adopted relationships, <laughs> surrogate relationships. That's my daddy. I pick. That's my daddy who showed up. That's my right. All of these different dynamics. Sometimes meet the media in their rush to put out a sound bite. They don't always do their due diligence and they don't think about the long term harm that they can do by not taking this moment to bridge and make sure that all of the voices who want or need to be heard are centered. And, and so that actually those kinds of experiences post afterwards actually drive further division. If there's no intention around healing and bringing um, men together, especially men you like I pay close attention to the adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. Um, there are times that I believe that the ACEs are not entirely culturally competent, where they don't recognize cultural traumas for us mm-hmm. as black people in America. Let's just be clear about who I'm talking about. 
And so for fathers, you know, there are two aces in there, one that speaks to um, incarceration and the other one that speaks to <clears throat> separated parents. But to me there, those aces need to be expanded and expanded into spaces where they are specifically looking at things like fatherlessness as an ace as an adverse childhood experience, not having access to your father. Mm -hmm. Historical traumas has to be part of what we are looking at, not so much to speak to the fact that slavery has an impact on our children, but the impact on slavery on our society has an impact on our children from a racial point of view. When you look at the ACEs as it relates to grief and trauma, particularly for black communities and in the space of this violence, are they adequately reflecting the trauma that we are uniquely experiencing? Or should we just be broadening the conversations of some of the existing ACEs? So, you know, just, you know, the first thing is that the ACES study was done um, with middle, middle, primarily white, middle-class, college-educated um, white people. Mm. Um, and so my take on the ACES um, um, from the time I started, like, you know, including it in the work that I um, did, which was while I was work, doing addiction work, um, like back in like 2007 was that if this was the outcome for this group of people who had health insurance, who had college education, um, who had um, resources and in, 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 in income, right? Um, if these were the outcomes for, for these folks, who had all of the privilege of social buffers and advantages that um, you know come with skin privilege, that come with education um, and medical access and all of the things, that if this was the outcome for those folks, then what are the implications for all of our folks who don't have any of those buffers, who um, experience higher rates of poverty, higher rates of incarceration, higher rates of addiction, higher rates of, of death. Um, um, what were the outcomes and the implications for, for our folks? And so what I've seen is, is that we know that the, the implications are there, right? And you factor in historical trauma and those collective experiences. And so fortunately, there, there is some work that has been done to kind of highlight and say, wait a second, the starting point for us is different mm -hmm. because of historical trauma, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that even when we talk about trauma um, in and of itself, the trauma that we're dealing with, not only does it have this historical context, but it also has complex, it's complex trauma because we are not just dealing with 
um, the trauma that comes in these uh, in those domains that they looked at. But we're also dealing with the systemic trauma that comes from racism, that comes from discrimination, that comes from health disparities, that comes from, you know, um, you know, over the over incarceration of black and brown people that comes from the um, uh, you know the crack epidemic right that comes from all of these different things that come from Jim Crow right it's all of these things and so we are we have a different baseline to begin with and so if this is the outcome for this group of people and they have all of these you know social buffers and advantages then the implications um, and the impact of adverse experiences um, for Black people is it, it's just unimag- unimaginable. The, there was a Philadelphia um, study of ACEs, and they looked at Philadelphia. It's called the Philadelphia ACE study, I believe. And what they did was they incorporated some of these other elements Um, They incorporated racism and discrimination. They incorporated foster care, I believe. They incorporated community violence, like how safe do you feel in your neighborhood um, with discrimination? Um, You know, do have you do you feel and believe that you've had experiences of discrimination because of your race or ethnicity? Um, And so. You know, there that that I think it's called the expanded ACES study. But, you know, so there is a study that kind of looked at that um, in terms of, you know, the uh, expanding the conversation to include some of these other elements. And the broader piece for me is, is that if our baseline is different, um, then when we look at when we project what grief looks like down the road, we already know that we're going to have longer and more experiences with grief because the average black child experiences their first significant loss of a loved one, a close loved one by age eight in comparison to white children who experience those same types of losses later in adolescence or young adulthood. Mm. So our kids are hit with these multiple types of losses, first starting with death, right? Um, Death, let's focus on death from illnesses, right? Death from illnesses. By then we factor in death through violence, okay? And then we factor in loss, other losses due to incarceration or parental absence, okay? Um, uh, And so the losses are ongoing and they're layered for our people and um, the projection, and we saw it with COVID. Mm -hmm. We saw the numbers were astounding with COVID in terms of how our community was affected. Right. You know, you like I, as we kind of round, I knew we were going to, I was going to have more conversation and questions for you than what I originally wanted to talk about, which was to focus a little bit on how all this stuff 
resonates through our communities during the holidays because that's a whole nother conversation but we can expand that conversation later on i'll definitely have you come back and let's talk about how these you know occasions in life like really expand you know how we are impacted by grief but the one that i do not want to slide by is you and i are both children of faith and so um we are often terry williams said to me one time um, Terry Williams, who wrote the book um, Black Pain. Uh, if you ever get a chance to read that book, it's an awesome, awesome book. Um, she herself is now struggling with dementia. Um, so my prayers are with her. She said to me, Kenny, she said, you know, prayer is good and prayer is needed. She says, but I also believe that God sends us therapists. <laughs> that you know that go ahead and get your praying but pray for a good number for a good therapist so you can get your therapy in and what we often hear you know from churches is the importance of prayer but i'm never always quite sure whether or not they are equipped enough to do the other work that needs to happen other than officiating the funeral and so how do we close that gap? Is it bringing more resources to the churches? Is it educating pastors and leadership about these experiences that their parishioners are going through? Like what's the workaround in really strengthening them to do what they do best, but to be more well-rounded in being able to provide a service for the community? So, I mean, you know, one of the things I, I taught a class and actually I'm in the process of writing a book. So pray for me. I finish it. Okay. <laughs> I want to finish it by my birthday, which is March. So agree with me by that. I'll with put that. the pressure on you. I'll keep the pressure on you. But keep the pressure on. It's called Life After the Celebration. Hmm. And, um, um, you know, surviving church after loss. And. You know, I taught that, um, you know, that, again, that was something that God gave me. And I was very privileged and fortunate to teach that, um, you know, in our local statewide um, Christian education sessions. I was able to do that. And um, it was the one elective class that actually pastors came to. It was one of the most well-attended classes because people understood that there was something that they needed. Now, in doing those classes and um, in, in, in doing workshops, you know, at churches, what I learned was, is that I came in to present information, but once I presented the information, it opened up an opportunity for them to heal. And so going forward, I started to build that piece in, is that I'm going to, present this information, but I want you to eat first. Mm -hmm. And we're going to go wherever God takes that, because I know that if you receive your healing and breakthrough and clarity around this for yourself, that that in and of itself will position you better to receive the next part of instructions that I'll give. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I think that one, pastors and leaders in ministries experience their own personal losses, 
but they also experience losses related to ministry in the form of friendships and in the form of people who they, they build with who then leave the um, some under good circumstances, some under not so good circumstances, but they, so they bring to the work or the role, all of these layers of losses and without safe and confidential spaces to be able to actually hash that out and, and, and process that. And so what I see with people in general, not just people of faith as a whole, is they think that because you, I went through it and handled it this way, that that's, and I got through it and I'm okay, that that's the same way that you ought to handle it and right. get through right. And that's not accurate. And so I think that for ministries, there needs to be an openness and a willingness to actually create safe space without rushing people through their grieving experiences. You know, my, my babies, one of my, my youngest sisters um, died um, and suddenly in, in June of 2021 and overdose suicide, whatever you want to call it. And I remember, um, I remember, you know, then month that Sunday morning and I came downstairs to my desk and I went in my office and I just laid my head on my desk and I wept and I began to play Tasha Cobbs you know my name and just earlier that month um earlier in the month during worship I had this experience with God um where he was asking for another level of yes Mm. And I was just, I was just crying and I was crying and then I was like, okay, yes, 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 yes. And on that Sunday morning, as I walked to my office, I said, Lord, I don't know if I can do this. He said, but you already told me yes. Mm. Yes, I'll go through. Right. And so in that moment, I had a decision to make about how was I going to position my faith around a situation that I had been praying and fasting about for months mm -hmm. faithfully. And the outcome was this. And any other time when the outcome could have been that, God gave me a warning and I was able to stop what I was doing and travail and intercede on behalf of my sister. And mm. this time I ain't no warning. Mm. I ain't get a chance to interrupt and, and bombard heaven with my request to preserve her life. And so I had a decision to make and I made a decision that one, I was just going to go where, wherever it took me and trust God. And that's what I did. And so my worship was ugly. It was unorthodox. Mm -hmm. It was uncomfortable for the people who were sitting next to me. But I was fighting for my life, my emotional life, my and the 
emotional and mental and spiritual well-being of my mom, my nieces, my other siblings. And, and, and it helped. It got me through. And I was not open to what other people had to say. And I think that we have to be comfortable as people of faith, which is giving full expression to where it is that we are at. When you read Joshua 1 and 9, he says, he's, God says to Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead. That's at the beginning of Joshua. Joshua mm-hmm. knew his servant was dead. Mm-hmm. But when Think about Joshua in the context of loss, that everybody that he had grew up with and left Egypt with was dead. Mm -hmm. Everybody, they all died off because only a certain portion of the generation could go in. Mm -hmm. So anybody that he called auntie, uncle, and all of them folk, them people was gone. And he all of these people who have been orphaned, they only know the wilderness. Mm-hmm. They don't remember some of the miracles because they wasn't born yet, some of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's only Caleb and Moses that he has left. And so when Moses dies, that's not just his leader dying, that is his father figure. Mm-hmm. That is his mentor, okay? That is his granddaddy, because Moses was over 80 when, you know? Mm-hmm. This was this was multiple, this was an intergenerational loss wrapped up in one person. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that when God said, be of good courage, he wasn't talking about the journey ahead, about going into the promised land. Yeah, that was a part of it. But I believe that he was speaking to the depth in the void that Joshua had in him saying, listen, I got you so you can be of good courage. Because he says, be of good courage because I'm with you. Mm. With you. I'm the one who is sufficient enough to fill the depth of that void on the inside of you. And I think that when ministries grasp the depth of the void that is that exists within the people that they have, their approach will start to be different in the application of scripture and the invitation that we offer to the Holy Spirit to come in and fill up those empty, empty spaces. And when you look at it that way, now you don't tread in the office of pastor, apostle, prophet, bishop, all that. You understand that this is sacred ground. Mm -hmm. It's sacred ground. And we tread accordingly, not with cliches, not with the misrepresentation of scripture used in the form of cliches, but we tread with humility, inviting the Holy Spirit to be our teacher so that we can embody the comfort that God has promised to his people in their time of loss. Yeah, and that's, well, that's where it lands. I'm going to need you to finish your book because um, you just preached the mighty word and confirmed things that God has 
told me to do and I've obeyed and shifted and it actually now explains exactly why I'll be playing this portion of this video personally for me to continue to hear it so I can glean more from it. But about three years ago, you know, in a, in a similar moment with you where I was really felt like God was asking me to do more and I was resisting because I was speaking to my, what I believe my capacity was like, there's no way I could do more. Like I'm like, I'm, I'm feeling stretched. I'm feeling thin. I'm not feeling impactful. I'm not feeling like I'm resonating. Like how can I possibly do more? And he was like, you are misinterpreting what I'm telling you to do because you are worried about broadening. And what I'm trying to get you to do is deepening. Like go deep, don't go broad. Stop worrying about the fruit. That's not your calling. Your calling is the root. I need you in the root. I need you establishing a different and stronger root. I will take care of the fruit. That's not something. And I believe when you talk about Moses and now the extension into Joshua, that was the messaging for Moses. You are not responsible for the, for the fruit. You are responsible for the root. You are responsible for digging deeper and going deeper and for Joshua and Caleb to understand that the importance of going deep as opposed to going broad, it changes how you look at things, right? Because everything that is about broadening is above the surface where everybody can see. That's where you get your awards. That's where you get your accolades. That's where you get your likes. That's where you get all of those kinds of things. But that work under the grass, in the depths, in the dirt, in the roots is a different kind of work because no one sees that and no one understands that you have to do that with a level of understanding light in the darkness, right? And so, yeah, we have to follow up on that. So listen, Minister Dr. Lisa Good prophetically, tell everybody how they can get in touch with Urban Grief and how they can get in touch with you and find out more about your phenomenal work. Um, so people can, um, of course, DM me at um, in my Instagram at Urban Grief. Um, you can also reach me at Lisa W. Um, Lisa at Lisa W. You know, if you're if you are in need of grief coaching, grief recovery, um, a, a grief intensive, especially with the holidays coming up, you know, I'm going to be doing some individualized, um, you know grief um, intensives with people, it's worth the investment. I'm good at what I do. It's worth the investment. Um, if you need support and services from Urban Grief, you can email us at info at urbangrief.org. Um, and, you know, we'll see how we can work with you, work something out. But what I will say to you is that it is never too late to grieve wow. and some of you need to go back mm -hmm. to losses that you said oh so much time has passed 
And now you're dealing with a loss in this moment. And you're saying, why? I didn't even know that person that well. Or I didn't even, that happened across country. I don't even know those people. Why am I so shaken by that? It's because over time, you have been collecting and accumulating losses that you have been rationalizing away because you felt that you did not have the relational right to grieve. And now that you're at a certain point in your life, you know, it's like the straw that broke the camel's back. That's the place that you are in. And if you are in that place, I need you to hit me up because you need to have a, a moment and a space to where you can look back and say, yes, 40 years ago, a baby died in our family and everything changed. And I miss that baby. I miss my kindergarten friend. I miss the boy's dad who lived next door, who took time with me and his son, and he died. He went away with no explanation. I miss my mother. She left and never came back for me because of the great migration. Mm. Listen. It's there. It's never too late to grieve. It will transform your life. It will transform your life. And many people are scared, but you don't have to do it alone. Thank you so much. I appreciate you so much. And um, yeah, we need to stay in touch. I got some thoughts about some collaborative things we can do and some environments that I'm in that is in much need of your services. We'll talk about that offline, but I also want to thank all of our I Am Dad podcast listeners uh, for tuning in again. I appreciate you so much as we wind this year out. You know how I always like to leave you, always be to, always be kind to others as you are kind to yourself, or you might find yourself by yourself. Always shoot high for your goals, because even if you miss, you'll be amongst the stars. And that's my mentor and good friend, Art Mitchell, and my buddy, John Harris, used to always say to me, it's nice to be important, but you know what? It's much more important to be nice. Until next Sunday, peace out. Peace. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period. <laughs>